You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Today on the Useless Information Retrocast, you'll hear the true story of three teenagers who decided to take a joyride in an airplane, a man who was stabbed with a knife by, get this, a deer, a dress that was made entirely of postage stamps, plus you'll learn about the world's very first coin-operated pay telephone, which is certainly something you don't see much of these days. Well, all those stories, the question of the day, today's retro sponsor, and so much more, they're coming up next on today's edition of the Useless Information Retrocast. I am Steve Silverman, and this is the Useless Information Podcast. Useless Information Hi, everyone. I hope you're doing well. Now, if you're new listening to this podcast, let me extend a really big welcome to you. Anyway, today I have a great retrocast for you. And these are some of the shorter stories that I come across while researching the full-length stories that I typically do. Anyway, let's dive right into today's stories. So a couple of weeks ago, I was on a family Zoom call, and my dad's sister asked one of my cousins if she had obtained her birth certificate yet. And my cousin said she hadn't been able to do so because the online application asked her to list the hospital where she was born, but she was unsure of that. And the reason she doesn't know this is because when she was three years old, her parents divorced and she moved to Arkansas. For most of my cousin's life, she was told by her mom that she was born in Queens, New York. And the reason why she didn't have a birth certificate was that the hospital supposedly had a big fire and the records were destroyed. Sadly, her mom is no longer with us, but my dad's sister is quite certain that my cousin was born in Brooklyn, most likely at Maimonides Hospital, just like I was, hence the question about her obtaining her birth certificate. I guess the one good thing is that my cousin knows she was born in either Brooklyn or Queens, which means she was definitely born in New York City. But not everyone can be that certain. For example, just what city do you list on your birth certificate if one were to be born aboard a ship in the middle of the ocean, you know, in international waters? Or how about if the child was born while flying over another country, you know, some random country, while en route to its final destination? Well, such a problem confronted Henry Monroe Maurer. That's because his mother, Hattie May, She just happened to be an actress who traveled from city to city along the old Orpheum vaudeville circuit. And as she was boarding a train in Kansas City, Missouri on June 18th of 1903, she took a tumble. You know, down she went. Hattie was unhurt, but as the train moved along its journey eastward, Mrs. Maurer suddenly went into labor and she gave birth to Harry. Years later, Harry would know, quote, When my mother got off the train in Jefferson City, she put up at the Monroe Hotel. That's how I got my middle name. It's a funny thing, you know? Years later, when Harry went to enlist in the U.S. Navy during World War I, 
he was unable to answer the very first question that the government clerk asked him. It really was a straightforward one. You know, where were you born? I mean, most of us can answer that. But surprisingly, Harry had no idea. And that's because the question had never come up before and his mother had never told him that train story. It wouldn't be until the late 1920s that Harry would finally ask his mother where he was born. And she told him the story of how he was born on a train somewhere between Kansas City and Jefferson City. Later on, when Harry applied for Social Security, his papers were mailed back because he didn't include his place of birth on the application. So Harry sent the papers back with an explanation, but he claimed that he never received any further word on that. Now let's fast forward to February 3rd of 1938, and Harry is standing in line trying to register to vote in Kansas City. So he hands over his application, but the registration official, well, you know, he's just puzzled by it. In the blank for place of birth, Harry simply wrote, quote, on a train in transit between Kansas City and Jefferson City. The official then asked Harry, can you prove it? Harry then reached into his pocket and he pulled out an old yellow newspaper clipping from June 18th of 1903 and it told of the birth of a son to Mrs. Hattie Maurer aboard a passenger train that was headed toward Jefferson City. He said, that's me, I'm her son, Harry Maurer. And with that proof, Harry was officially allowed to vote. So I decided to do some searching, see if I could find that, uh, you know, June 18th, 1903 article. But I have to say I was unsuccessful. But as I looked through the various articles that mentioned Harry's name, I realized I had recently done a story on him. That was back in Retrocast 14, which I recorded this past January. In it, if you recall, Harry, his wife, and their son, they were on a fishing trip. Harry slipped on the dock and he sprained his hand. His wife fell in the lake and she fractured her hand. And finally, their son, he dropped a target pistol and the bullet went right through his arm. One thing that I did find was Harry's World War II registration card. He was 38 by this time and he listed his place of birth as, quote, train between Kansas City and Jefferson. (laughs) Next up, we have a story that took place in Schenectady, New York, which really isn't that far from my home. We do consider it local. I'm guessing it's about a 25-minute drive away. And it involves a young man named Mario Mastriani, and he was injured while fighting in Tunisia during World War II. If you've never bothered to look at a map to see where Tunisia is, imagine where Italy is and just go south across the Mediterranean, and that's where Tunisia is located. Anyway, during a devastating bomb explosion, Mastriani was violently thrown to the ground. And when stretcher bearers came to his aid, they found him unable to speak. This was the result of a severe concussion that rendered him voiceless. Can you imagine not being able to speak? While at the hospital, army physicians attempted various methods to restore his ability to speak, but their efforts proved unsuccessful. As a result, Mastriani was sent back home to Schenectady, and their specialists were brought in to examine Mario, but the consensus remained disheartening. They were unable to restore his speech. So resigned to his fate, he embarked on a journey to learn sign language, 
and he was able to secure employment at an electrical plant, and he communicated with his co-workers simply by using pen and paper. Then, in July of 1943, Mastriani, he got into a heated argument with his 16-year-old brother, Tony. You see, the young man was contemplating abandoning his education to enter the workforce. Overwhelmed by frustration and anger, Mario suddenly blurted out the words, All right, you support the family and I'll stay home and have fun. Did you hear what I just heard? Well, Tony certainly did, and he was jumping for joy. But it took his brother Mario a full minute to comprehend the significance of this utterance. These were the first spoken words he had articulated in nearly a year and a half. This unexpected turn of events transformed what began as a bitter quarrel into a momentous celebration, and it was witnessed by the entire family and their neighbors. Mario explained, I had quit school and I didn't want Tony to make the same mistake. Medical professionals were perplexed by Mastriani's sudden restoration of speech. All they could surmise is that the veteran's intense anger somehow triggered a response within his previously paralyzed throat muscles, and that led to this miraculous outcome. Now, I did do a quick check, and it appears that Mario remained a lifelong Schenectady resident. He passed away on February 25th of 2004, and he is buried in Schenectady Memorial Park. He was 84 years old. His grave marker shows that he was awarded the Bronze Star Medal and the Purple Heart. During the evening of July 2nd of 1959, three teenagers decided to go for the ultimate joyride. They stole an air coupe airplane owned by the George H. Bailey Company from the Akron Municipal Airport and they just took to the skies. And while I'm not an aviation expert, this appears to be a two-person aircraft, so my guess is that two of them were crammed in the rear seat. That is one tight squeeze. The three were later identified as 16-year-old Carl Fullerton, who just happened to pilot the plane, 17-year-old Paul V. Fabry, and 15-year-old Sandra Lee Lawson, who just happened to have been reported missing by her parents on June 13th. That's about two weeks earlier. Fullerton wasn't exactly a novice at flying a plane. You see, his father, Ed, was a professional pilot, and he had given his son flying lessons. But the youth had never flown without an instructor long before. After takeoff, it's believed that the trio flew aimlessly over central Ohio until they began to run low on fuel. They were in desperate need of a place to land, and they found a flat field to safely put down the plane in West Lafayette. That's about 80 miles or 130 kilometers south of Akron. But now they had another problem. How were they going to get home? So they opted to hitchhike, and that really didn't work out too well for them. That's because they were spotted by a deputy sheriff and, of course, picked up. Juvenile authorities were contacted who, in turn, told their parents they can go pick up their kids. So some of Ed Fullerton's aviation buddies flew to get the teenagers and later brought them back to the Akron airport. They landed around 6 p.m. on Friday and the police were called. A patrol car was sent to pick up the three kids, but just before they got there, the two boys said they, quote, want to get a drink of water. 
Well, you guess what happened next? They didn't return, and that left poor Sandra behind to face the consequences. She was taken to the local juvenile detention home. I'm guessing that she wasn't too happy that her two friends had abandoned her. Well, it turns out that the boys had walked to a farm owned by Paul for Bree's aunt, and they spent the night sleeping in a haystack there. And then early Saturday morning, the aunt took them in and fed them. Around noon that same day, another aunt read about the airplane theft in the newspaper, and she called the farm and then drove to pick up the boys. From there, they were driven home, then taken to the Akron police station, and ultimately ended up in the same juvenile detention home that their friend Sandra was in. Mrs. Fabree told the press that the boys were, quote, scared and mighty sorry. They knew they made a mistake. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but when I first started teaching at Chatham High School during the 1990-91 school year, a student named Patrick asked me if he could borrow a nickel. And that request kind of puzzled me, and that's because a nickel wouldn't purchase anything back then. Maybe he can get a piece of gum, I don't know. So I asked him what the nickel was for, and he told me it was to use the payphone just outside of the school's front lobby. And I must admit, I found this surprising because most payphones were 25 cents back then, not 5 cents. But this was in Chatham. And the area's phone company, that was Taconic Telephone, they took pride in having the last payphones in the United States that still only charge 5 cents for a local call. The reality is they had very few payphones, and this got them a little bit of national recognition from time to time. And I think that's the real reason why they kept them. Of course, those payphones are long gone, as is just about every other one in the world. So my question for you is, when was the first payphone invented? And you probably don't know the exact date, but see if you can come close. And as you're trying to figure it out, keep in mind that Alexander Graham Bell made that famous first phone call to his assistant, Thomas Watson, on March 10th of 1876. So clearly the payphone had to be invented after that date. So just when was the first coin-operated payphone first invented? Do you have any idea? Well, hang around for a bit, and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. If it has been some time now since you have tasted a Forever Yours candy bar, you have a real taste thrill in store for you. For in each bite of Forever Yours, you enjoy that same delightful candy treat we all remember. The thick, dark chocolate coating is no ordinary chocolate but the finest, specially blended, pure dark chocolate. 
The golden layer of caramel is still that same smooth caramel that has long been one of the greatest triumphs of skilled candy makers. And the soft vanilla nougat center is creamy smooth and richly flavored with real malted milk. All melt together in each enjoyable mouthful. To give you that rare taste blend, you'll find only in Forever Yours. Treat yourself to the enjoyment that is Forever Yours. That commercial for the Forever Yours candy bars from the March 13, 1948 broadcast of the romantic drama Curtain Time. This particular episode was titled, Who is Christopher Randolph? The show had two distinct runs on radio. It first ran on the Don Lee Mutual Network from 1938 through 1939, and it was sponsored by General Mills. Later, from 1945 through 1950, it ran on the ABC and NBC networks with Mars Candy, as you just heard, as its sponsor. The story of the Forever Yours Bar traces its roots back to 1923. That's when Frank C. Mars introduced a new candy bar that was made of nougat topped with caramel and coated with milk chocolate. As a little side note, that milk chocolate was made by Hershey's. Anyway, he named it the Milky Way Bar, and oddly it wasn't named after the Milky Way Galaxy. It was named after a malted milk drink that was very popular at the time. Anyway, three years later, two different varieties were available. One was a chocolate nougat with a milk chocolate covering, and the other was a vanilla nougat with a dark chocolate coating. Beginning in 1932, they came in a two-piece bar. Basically, you got one of each in each package. And that lasted until 1936. That's when the company decided to market the bars separately. The chocolate nougat version stayed as the Milky Way bar here in the United States, although I should point out that it's marketed as the Mars bar in the rest of the world. The vanilla nougat version with the dark chocolate, that was renamed the Forever Yours Bar, and it was sold under that name until 1979. At some point, it was relaunched as the Milky Way Dark Bar, and today it's sold as the Milky Way Midnight Bar. Anyway, I have to admit that after listening to that commercial, I want to try a Forever Yours Milky Way Midnight Candy Bar. I don't think I've ever tasted one. Next up, I have five footnotes to history, and these are shorts that require no further research on my part, so I'm simply going to read them word for word. And the first one has a headline of Dress Made of Postage Stamps. And this comes from the June 2nd, 1906 publication of the Buffalo News. This appeared on page five. At a ball in Bermuda, a wonderful dress was worn, in the making of which over 30,000 stamps were used. Years were spent in collecting the stamps and three weeks in the making of the dress, which was of the finest muslin. The lady called upon her friends to help her, and the dress was covered with the stamps of all nations. They were not put on anyhow, but in an elaborate design. On the front of the bodice was an eagle made entirely of brown Colombian stamps. Suspended from the bird's talons was a globe made of very old blue revenue stamps. On each side of the globe was an American flag having stripes of red and blue stamps. On the back of the Buddhist was a collection of foreign stamps in the form of a shield, in the center of which was a portrait of Sir George Summers 
cut from old revenue stamps. But that's not all. The article goes on. A picture hat covered with red and blue stamps was worn with this remarkable dress. Now, this article does mention George Summers, who you may not be familiar with. He lived from 1554 to 1610 and is best remembered today as the founder of the English colony of Bermuda, which is, of course, where this dress was being shown. And the article does mention the 30,000 stamps we used to make this dress, and I'm going to go on the assumption these were canceled stamps. You know, nobody lined up at the post office to purchase them all. Next up, we have a story that took place in Belle Plaine, Kansas, on February 2nd of 1920. Miss Alma Lane of Belle Plaine, in August 1916, threw a tightly corked bottle containing a slip of paper bearing her name and address into the Nineska River near here. Recently, three and a half years after launching the bottle, she received a letter from R.S. Baldwin, an engineer for the Puget Sound Light and Power Company, Seattle, Washington, stating that he had picked up the bottle while boat riding on Washington Lake Canal near Seattle. Quote, Evidently, the three-and-a-half-year journey of the bottle took it down the Nineska to the Arkansas River, thence to the Mississippi, out to the Gulf of Mexico, around Cape Horn, and up along the Pacific coast to Seattle, said Miss Lane. I don't believe by any chance it could have made its way through the Panama Canal. Either way, whether it went through the Panama Canal or not, making its way from the Atlantic Ocean all the way to the Pacific Ocean and up to North America, that is quite the trip. And I really like this story. It's from the November 19, 1938 publication of the Ironwood Daily Globe, and this appeared on the front page. The headline reads, Deer Stabs Man and Even Score. Stambaugh, Michigan, November 19th, Associated Press. Albert Christensen, who reported he was stabbed by a deer, is recovering at his home in Stambaugh Township. Christensen related this story. He was hunting in the woods north of here and shot a buck. He dropped his gun and ran to the deer with a hunting knife in his hand. The animal kicked, knocked the knife from Christensen's hand, and the blade penetrated his right forearm inflicting a deep gash. He was weak from loss of blood when brought to a doctor's office here. He walked two miles, that's around 3.2 kilometers, he walked two miles through the woods and then drove to Stambaugh. Ouch. At the time, I only felt a punch. I think everything went wrong. His drug of choice was heroin. Binging and purging over and over and over. Evaluate you, and if you're okay to go, they're going to let you go. This is Justin, and I do the Peripheral Podcast. I have a true crime background, but when telling the stories of true crime, sometimes you have to gloss over topics like mental illness, drug addiction, sexual assault. And I feel like we do that in life, too. So this podcast is my attempt to bring all of these topics that are on the peripheral into the mainstream. So please join me wherever you listen to podcasts. This next story was published in the Akron Beacon Journal on April 19th of 1943 on page 2. The headline reads, Horn honks of cab exceeds 35 miles. 
a honking method for compelling taxi drivers to obey the 35-mile-an-hour speed laws has been devised by C.L. Veering, president of the city cab. Now, 35 miles an hour is about 56 kilometers per hour. Anyway, let's continue. He has had all the cabs wired in such a manner that when the speedometer passes the 35-mile mark, the horn automatically starts blowing. And it keeps blowing until a taxi gets back to the garage or a mechanic is sent out to stop the wailing. I have to admit, I'm kind of glad this idea never caught on. Can you imagine every time a taxi cab went over 35 miles per hour, the horn would just continuously blow until it got back to the garage? You just wake up everyone in the middle of the night. And the last little tidbit I have for you today is also from the Akron Beacon Journal. And this is from October 21st, 1959 and appeared on page three. The headline on this one is Short Stroll and Adventure, Bath, England, United Press International. Anthony Scarrett, 22 months old, tumbled out of his carriage in front of his house, bounced up and ambled towards the front door. He walked into a coal chute, fell 11 feet into the cellar, got up and tottered toward the door, walked through and tumbled into the River Avon. Neighbor Vic Watterson spotted Anthony and jumped in to pull him out. Anthony recovered consciousness on the way to the hospital, where an examination showed he received minor bruises. I have to say, sometimes it seems like little kids, they're just made of rubber. So earlier in the podcast, I'd asked you when the first payphone was invented. And as a little bit of guidance, I added in the fact that the first telephone call was made on March 10th of 1876. You know that famous call. Mr. Watson, come here. I want to see you. Well, the first coin-operated payphone was invented just 13 years later, in 1889. Its inventor was William Gray, who was a lifelong tinkerer, and his other major invention was a padded chest protector for baseball catchers, and that became standard equipment in the sport in the 1890s. The story goes that Gray's wife had fallen ill and he urgently required a doctor's assistance. However, despite his desperate situation, he faced a significant obstacle. That is that nobody was willing to lend them their telephone to make the crucial call. Of course, it's important to note that during this period, telephones were a relatively recent invention, and of course, they weren't widely accessible. I should also add they were prohibitively expensive to install, and that made them unaffordable for the average American. Now, Gray's wife did recover, but he was determined to make the telephone available to the masses. And payphones did already exist, but they required individuals to pay the attendant before making a call. What Gray did that was groundbreaking is he introduced a coin-operated device. And his initial design used a cover simply to block the mouthpiece of the receiver. When you drop the coin in, that cover would slide away and you could make your call. But the problem was if someone called you, you wouldn't be able to answer the phone. Why? Because the mouthpiece was covered. The only way to answer that call would be to drop coins in. So Gray thought about it and he came up with a better idea. When a coin was inserted, a bell would ring, and that would tell the operator that a call had been paid for. And this was later improved so that there were three coin slots with three different sounding bells, 
This would allow the operator to determine whether a nickel, a dime, or a quarter was inserted. Keep in mind there were no direct calls at this time. You know, all calls went through an operator who would then connect your line to the correct port on their switchboard. So when someone lifted the receiver, they'd be connected to the operator who would then guide them on the appropriate amount of money to insert into the coin box. And then after the money was inserted, the operator would connect the call. So if you were to go to the corner of Main Street and Central Row in Hartford, Connecticut today, you would find a magnificent building that was once home to the Hartford, Connecticut Trust Company. On the corner of the building is a little sign. It really is. You'd probably miss it. There's a little sign that reads, quote, World's first paid telephone. Invented by William Gray and developed by George A. Long, was installed on this corner in 1889. In 1891, Gray established the Gray Telephone Pay Station Company, and George Long, who I just mentioned, he was responsible for many of the significant improvements in their design. Gray passed away on January 24th of 1903 at the age of 51, but of course his invention lived on. By 1995, the number of payphones in the United States had reached its pinnacle with an estimated count of 2.5 million. However, with the rapid proliferation of cell phones, the prevalence of payphones swiftly declined. I mean, personally, I can't even remember the last time I saw one. Well, I do hope you enjoyed the stories that I selected for today's retrocast. The next episode will technically be my 200th episode, although there really have been some other miscellaneous ones thrown in there over the years, but it is my 200th original episode. So the question is, do I have something special planned for that? Hmm. Let's kind of put that in the sort of category. And that's because I do have someone special lined up to be a guest for the next podcast, but at this point I'm not sure if that will materialize in time or not. And just in case it doesn't, I do have a couple of backup stories I've been working on so I can pull from those. Now, if you've enjoyed this episode or the podcast in general, I'd greatly appreciate it if you could share it with someone. You know, that can be through Reddit, Facebook, Twitter, or by whatever means. Uh, Anything that will help grow my audience is greatly appreciated. Just a reminder, you can find the Useless Information Podcast wherever you get your podcasts, so make sure you subscribe. And lastly, the Useless Information Podcast is now part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. So be sure to visit airwavemedia.com where you will find a curated selection of some of the best podcasts, not just in history, but also in science, wellness, education, and the arts. As always, thanks for listening and take care, everyone. Bye.